Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Woo, child. Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest. I'm going to let her introduce herself. My name is Kamala Harris, and I am a United States Senator from California. Woo! And there you go. Does it ever get old saying that? My name? Yeah. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I was going to say, and I'm a United States <laughs> senator. I've been saying my name for years. It does get old. No. <laughs> so is there um, drive you crazy that people say your name wrong? Yeah, it does sometimes. You know what I actually think? I'm sure there's a study that's been done for those of us who have names that are, are frequently mispronounced. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there is something in character development about... Having to, you know, having an experience over and over again of this. Do I correct that person or not? (laughs) (laughs) Right? And there are sometimes when I don't and sometimes when I do. And and I think it's interesting how one's character might actually be influenced by having a lifelong experience with being in that situation where you're having potentially a very – intimate conversation with someone who's continually mispronouncing your name. <laughs> right. Or something that they might perceive as confrontational when you're really just like, these the are the facts. Point. And that's the other point. And mm-hmm. especially as a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have that example in so many things, right? Do we correct? Do Is it going to be interpreted as, as uh, you know, challenging someone as opposed to just, you know, kind of um, expecting that, that we will be honest and not have somebody assume that that's an attack? Right. Right. Yeah. The reason why I asked if it ever gets old to say that, like, and I'm a United States senator, is, you know, I mean, in the grand scheme of the Senate, you were relatively new to the job. Yes. Yeah. And 18 um, months. Yeah. yeah. And we're wondering maybe if you can talk about what at this point you consider your, like, your biggest win or the thing that when you're like, wow, when I look back at those 18 months, this is the thing that, like, I want top of the resume. The, I'll tell you, um, one of the things that I think for me is most important is the role that I serve on the various committees that I'm on, um, which are oversight committees. Like, let's be clear, those committees exist to 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 watch and question um, what is going on with our government, with the United States government. So I'm on Senate Intelligence. I'm on Homeland Security. I'm on Judiciary. And the accomplishment then for me is a function of what I think my role should be. And often, especially in the last 18 months, it has been to try and get at the truth. And so the accomplishment is and the goal is to always make sure that we are being and the system is being as transparent as possible. And that, you know, frankly, that the American public has the answers and that we're being told the truth. And when that happens, I feel a sense of accomplishment. And when it doesn't happen, I feel a sense of frustration. <laughs> so, so I, how have you been feeling lately? <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I, you know, I, so there is this well. So, okay, so to get into the capital where we vote, you there, you get off the train, and there's this well. A couple of yards away is the escalator to go up to the Capitol. In that well, 
is a swarm or whatever the word is, gaggle or whatever the word is for a lot of press people. <laughs> and so they're there with cameras and notepads and recorders. And so, you know, you, you go through that well and they constantly ask questions. So almost every day. And a friend of mine said calmly, you know, I watch you in these interviews and you just keep using some version of the word troubled. <laughs> so I'm troubled. It's troubling. It was a troubling moment. It was trouble, trouble, trouble. And, and he said to me, why don't you just tell them what you tell me? It's a hot mess. <laughs> why don't you, though? Yeah. I have started to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, or some version of that, which is also, you know, troubled. And troubling. I'm so glad that you brought that up because the worst things about me is how much cable TV news I watch every day. Yeah, I'm you, try- got, it's you just, gotta it's slow that news. down a little. You know, yeah. uh, I'm two weeks sober. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's only because I'm in town. But but <laughs> it's true. Like Anna's sleeping where my television is. So I have access to it. But you know, there is really something for like for those of us who are home and are just like the mess is very hot. <laughs> things are and things are bad like objectively like things are very 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 bad it's like when when i think about the family separation issues yep and just the onslaught of news that we're having to sit at home and hear like our all of our elected representatives go up there and say i'm troubled this is disappointing is it it is almost maddening for us at home yeah. because we're like are you like i'm like i am calling my friends and i'm screaming and i am right. angry and it is an onslaught. Mm-hmm. It's like there's too much there's too much incoming. So I understand that, you know, making that triage is hard. But I do wonder if that's something that you think about in your job because we're calling the offices constantly. We're yeah. do we're doing all the things that we're supposed to be doing and we we're looking for adults in the room yeah. in some regards. And to hear our elected representatives just have these tepid feelings about things is something that um you know, that's troubling to me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. So here's the thing. Part of what um, I would say is that I, I see things that they're not necessarily depicted every day on cable news, mm-hmm. but are things that also give me a great deal of excitement and optimism and hope. I see thousands of dreamers since the beginning of last year who have descended on the United States Capitol. They are traveling by by car, by train, by bus, God knows how they're affording, you know, I'm sure they're sleeping to that point 10 deep on somebody's living room floor, who have been traveling to the United States Capitol because they truly believe if they walk those halls and are able to tell their stories and be seen, that it will matter. They believe in our democracy. I have seen the same with the thousands of Parkland kids, which is which now is not only the kids from Florida, but from Chicago and Compton and all over the country, descending, activating um, to to make sure that they are heard and and to make our democracy actually do its thing, which is to let all voices be heard. The number of parents with children, many of whom were were severely disabled, who you know d- went through incredible effort to travel to go to the United States Capitol around the fight on the Affordable Care Act. And so I have seen really beautiful moments that represent who I believe we really and truly are as a country, which is a country of people, one, that will stand up and fight for the best of who we are and who are activated and are not dispirited and are optimistic because, you know, after all, if you're going to be in a fight, you have to be optimistic that you can win. 
And so there is a version of the fight that is also about optimism. Um, and, I, and I am optimistic. I do believe that we are facing challenges like we have never seen before. We are seeing some of the worst of behavior. I do see and know that it is clear that we have powerful voices that are trying to sow hate and division among us. But I see also people who have been activated and turned on, and they are not going to turn off. They're going to stay involved. And, and that's going to be what ends up prevailing. I do believe it. It's going to take some time, but I believe that. Are you are you even an optimist when it comes like when I think about the things that I feel most despairing about? It's stuff like are you optimistic about blocking Kavanaugh? Like that's one of those things where I'm like it feels like postcarding into the void. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Go back to the fight on the Affordable Care Act from the very beginning. First of all, seven years under the Obama administration, there were those who tried to obstruct and stop it at every step of the way because it was his administration that was pushing it, even though it was one of the most significant. Um, public policy initiatives that we'd seen since Social Security. You know, it's not without its its flaws, but it was pivotal in terms of making sure that that many more people would have access to health care. Women would not have to deal with pre-existing conditions as being the barrier to getting insurance and getting coverage. And so they tried, they tried, they failed. It It passed. And then this administration came in and made it their number one priority. And for almost nine months, made it their number one priority. And what happened? People took to the streets. They also made the point that so many of these issues are not even bipartisan. They're nonpartisan, like health care. <laughs> right? <laughs> only Democrats right? on health care. Right, <laughs> right, exactly, right? <laughs> and what, what and what ended up happening? From the very beginning, everyone said there's no way. When we don't control the House, we don't control the Senate, we don't cl- control the White House, there's no way we can win this. And we won. You know, we have to remember the victories in order to, to also recognize that, that, that this, is, this is doable, but it's not going to be without effort. So remembering you, the victories, I'm like that. They seem so few and far between <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, you but know, you know, and, and some of the defeats are huge. It's like I, I still remember when Gorsuch got, um, you know, like he flew through his mm. nomination, it seemed like. Troubling. And very troubling. <laughs> Deeply troubling. And, yeah. and thinking the arc, you know, like the arc of that nomination, like starting with Merrick Garland, you know, and mm-hmm. how right. in in my imagination, I was like, actually, that was when we should have taken to the street. I'm optimistic about a lot of things. I'm not optimistic about them maybe in my lifetime. But it does feel to me that a lot of times we also do not learn from the mistakes that we have made as progressive and from a lot of the inertia that we've had. And so I wonder if that's something that you think about when you are making your, in the strategies and the work that you are doing. Yeah. So I want to just say another thing about optimism so that, you know, I'm, I don't think that our optimism is about denial. Our optimism is we are very clear eyed with what's not working. Right. And we know we are better than this. And that is optimism as far as I'm concerned. We know we're better than this. And so we need to fight for that and for who we are. Um, Optimism. Born out of the reality of knowing that the vast majority of us are so much more in common than what separates us, in spite of these forces that are trying to sow hate and division. I reject that. People say we're divided. I, I, I'm not going to buy into that because I know 
that for the vast majority of us, when we wake up in the middle of the night with that thing that has been weighing on us, that worry, right, the 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, waking up in a cold sweat, when we are waking up with that thought, it is never through the lens of the party with which we're registered to vote. It is never through the lens of some demographic a pollster put us in. And for the vast majority of us, that thought has to do with one of just a very few things, our personal health, the health of our parents or our children. Can I get a job, keep a job, pay the bills by the end of the month, retire with dignity, pay off our student loans? The vast majority of us have so much more in common than what separates us. And some people would say that is an optimistic thought. I think it is. But it is also the truth. And so we're just going to have to, I think that we, to your point about being fatigued, We've got to be in this for the long haul. And in order for this to be a sustainable movement, we have to understand that we are fighting for something and not against something. So it's about perspective, but with eyes, clear, clear eyes and and open eyes and being honest and speaking truths. So truths, right? Let's speak truths. If if Charlottesville didn't make it clear, you know, if it wasn't clear before, if Charlottesville makes it clear, racism is real in this country. Sexism is real in this country. Homophobia is real in this country. Anti-Semitism is real in this country. Let's speak those truths so we can deal with it. Let's speak truth. Sexual harassment in the workplace is real in this country. Let's speak truth. We are a nation of immigrants. And so to, to suggest that, that we are going to have border security by ripping babies from their mothers is ridiculous. And, you know, antithetical to who we are. Let's speak these truths, Right. Um, and this is part of this fight, speaking truths, even if they make people uncomfortable, but doing it with the optimism of knowing that when we speak truth, we will, we will, we will create trust in a way that doesn't exist right now. And trust is a step toward a much healthier environment. I definitely agree with all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that where I get hung up is I think that things that are no-brainer, you know, positives for the kinds of of middle-of-the-night concerns that you described are, in fact, when you take them, put them in the form of legislation, take them to Capitol Hill, are, in fact, like, very controversial or deeply partisan. And um, I'm wondering where you are feeling, like, some strategic momentum to take that a step further policy-wise. I've got a couple of examples. One is on the issue of the cash bail system in the United States. So I have long been an advocate for what we need to do to reform the criminal justice system. I was a district elected district attorney of San Francisco. I was the attorney general of California. We need to reform the criminal justice system in this country. There are huge inequities based on race, often based on gender, and certainly based on income. So cash bail. Basically, we have a system in this country that once you've been charged with a crime, while you're waiting to go to trial for the facts to be presented, um, if you have money, you can pay bail and you get out waiting to go to trial for what could be weeks, months, even years. If you don't have money, you don't get out. That's not fair. That's basically saying if you are a poor person, you will, you know, that you're going to sit in jail. And if you're a rich person, you're going to get out. And that's not about justice being blind, right? So it's completely and obviously unfair. It's not only a criminal justice issue, it's an economic justice issue. So I created a bill a year ago, presented it, um, saying let's reform the system and get rid of the cash bail system by replacing it with a risk assessment system. You know who my co-sponsor is? Rand Paul. Rand Paul. We read that op-ed. We read that op-ed. <laughs> right. And so let me tell you. And so we did the op-ed in the New York Times, right? 
op-ed drops, and I think, okay, well, Rand Paul's constituency um, is very different than my constituency, and I wonder how Rand Paul is doing now that this his constituency knows. And I was like, you know, I need to call up old boy and see how he's doing, right? <laughs> and I got in touch with him. I said, hey, Rand, you good? You know, your people good? How you doing? And you know what he said to me? He said, Kamala, Appalachia loves this. Because, again, we have much more in common than what separates us. His constituents know that this is an unfair system, that this is an economic justice issue. So that's one example. Another example, I've got a bill that is basically saying, one, that we have an affordable housing crisis in this country. And for people who are renting, it is, you know, we have rising cost for housing and stagnant wages. And the fact is that in America today, in 99% of the counties in America, if you are a minimum wage worker working 40 hours a week, in 99% of the counties in America today, you cannot afford a one-bedroom apartment that's at market rate. Whoa. So my bill is saying if your rent plus utilities is more than 30% of your income, you get a tax credit. Mm -hmm. That's a red-blue issue. That is an issue that crosses every demographic. And I expect that there's going to be bipartisan support for that. So these are the kinds of examples where we reject the notion that we are divided because on some of the most fundamental issues, we have much more in common than what separates us. The guy who is waking up in, you name your red state and all of the stereotypes that come with that demographic, who's waking up in the middle of the night, that guy, and the woman who's waking up in, you name your blue state and whatever that stereotype is of that demographic, when they wake up in the middle of the night, they're having the same thought. So I'm curious about then, like, go back to the the um, bail reform bill, for example. Yeah. Rand loves it. Rand's people love it. Yeah. Um, like, what's the prognosis throughout the rest of the Senate? We're going to have to keep pushing it. Yeah. And, and we're looking to get bipartisan support from Republicans and Democrats, and we're actively working on that. And I expect that if, they're, if, if folks are going to really look at what their constituents want— um, instead of looking at it through a lens that's about partisan obstructionism, mm-hmm. we're going to get good a good level of support for it, for something that is so basically and obviously a flaw in our system and that is a flaw that is targeted against working people, against poor people, and, um, and the equities just don't enforce the need to ha- continue to have a cash bail system in this country. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm leading on that. Mm-hmm. Wow, Rand Paul. (laughs) I know. Did not expect to talk so much about him today. Okay, gang, we're going to take a quick break and BRB with Senator Kamala Harris. I'm going to ask one more policy type question. 
But this one is hard because, you know, when we think about the positions you've taken publicly and your record, we're like, yes, yes, yes. yes, yes pounding yes. that like button. Like, <laughs> <you know? laughs> like, um, and, you know, in a recent example of something where we did not understand your position uh-huh. um, was your vote on SESTA and FOSTA, the legislation that shut down online sex work platforms, including Backpage. And much of the public conversation was about sex trafficking, and your statement was like, I don't like sex trafficking, definitely 100, and you also expressed like, some... It's a uh, like a First Amendment issue. Which you acknowledged, like, um, but I think for us, we we saw that as largely a labor issue, and, you know, and... Tell me what you mean by a labor issue. Well, basically that it was a platform for sex workers to safely do their jobs, or with more control, um, and what I think we were reading and hearing from people in that profession is that this was going to make their lives more difficult and more and dangerous. More dangerous yeah. And I'm curious if that, some of that feedback has reached you, and if so, how um, how you've responded. Well, first of all, I've spent a large part of my career, in fact, the majority of my career, working on issues that are crimes against women and children, and a vast majority of those as it relates to sexual assault um, and domestic violence and, and human trafficking. So... That that's just that's been a part of my life's work, and I'm very very familiar with the issues. And I have personally sat down with I can't tell you how many victims of those kinds of crimes. And the issue with Backpage, I actually have history with Backpage. I have been advocating for years that Backpage needs to shut down, mm. and they wouldn't because they were incredibly arrogant, and they had a business model. That was about, in particular, and this was the, 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 the reason that I, that I called for them to shut down. They were trafficking off of selling children, minors. So, yeah, I want them to shut down, and I'm glad they had to. And I'm glad those guys are being prosecuted. And I'm never going to defend their conduct. Never. Now, the idea of protecting sex workers is absolutely something I care about as well. Absolutely. And I can tell you countless cases where I have sat down with also sex workers who have been the, res- the, the, the victims of crime and survivors of crime because they were not protected, because we relegated them to some, you know, kind of moral classification that, that suggested they're not, that they're not worthy of or deserving of protection and dignity. And I reject those kinds of policies as well. But on that particular issue, that was as much as anything for me an issue about protecting vulnerable people and looking at, in the case of your back page, folks who were profiting off of the exploitation of girls and boys. So that feedback in terms of, um, you know, the perspective of sex workers and, you know, basically the labor issue as we see it. Like, yeah, no, has, that, has and reached that's you. legitimate, but yeah. that's a legitimate, that is a legitimate issue. And it's been around for a while, and I support that. I support the need for those women, and, and, and there are men also who are sex workers, and the need that they rightly have for protection and, um, and support and dignity as workers who are voluntarily and, and not being the subject of any kind of coercion or trafficking, I totally protect the right that they have to have safety in that in their workplace. Yeah. I want to talk about something a little different. So you are the daughter of two immigrants. You grew up in Oakland. You go to Howard. You rise through the ranks of the, the Democratic Party. What do you think that it means, particularly after the last election, that one of the main takeaways is that 
in order to like get back to the center, people are supposed to dial back their identity. Because that's the thing that we, obviously, we talk a lot about here, and you can already see me roll my eyes. Even just saying that, dial back your identity is something that I truly do not understand. So I'm curious, like, how you navigate that. Well, I reject it. Um, and I agree with you. I reject it. And when we're talking about identity, you know, it's, it's, they, it's a pejorative identity mm-hmm. politics. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an attempt by some to marginalize certain issues. But let's be clear, back to the point about the cash bail system or the issue of rent. It equally impacts poor people. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, so then let's look at the fact, you know, certainly then, then let's also talk about the fact that when you look, for example, at at, at incomes and you compare a woman and and then a woman of color and an African-American woman or a Latina to a white man, we have huge disparities in this country. We need to deal with that. You call that identity politics? I would say that's an American issue. <laughs> <laughs> that's not any one identity issue. That it, it, it's our identity. It's our issue as, an, as identifying as Americans. That's an issue. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Um, so I reject that notion. I think it is a it is an attempt to marginalize conversations that are about the inequities based on gender and based on race. And if we're ever going to deal with these realities. We have to dispense with notions that it, it is a, a, an issue that is only of concern to someone of a specific background. It should be a concern to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll put this in another context that is not often discussed. The hacking by the Russians of the United States election. So, okay, Kamala, show us the math on that. That was a big leap. <laughs> I know, I was doing the so, Julia okay. Roberts math. Okay, so, no, let me show, so let me show you the connection. <laughs> it is a matter of public reporting, and it is public conversation. First of all, it is a fact, in, despite those who would challenge it, Russia interfered with the election of the President of the United States of America. It is a fact unanimous finding by the intelligence community of the United States. So what is also a non-disputed fact is that the intention was to create a, a disharmony in the American public around our democracy, to create distrust in our democracy as a way to cripple us so that we can no longer be the power that we otherwise were perceived to be. Okay, so it is. It, it was a, an intentional attempt to make us weak, to sow distrust among Americans. So what is also known is that then that so that was the goal. What was the method? How do you do that? Well, they tried out a number of different things, but the thing that caught fire was the issue of race. I wonder why. <laughs> this is, but no, but no, no, no. But see, the, the point is, oh I want you to think about the issue of race as being unaddressed, the racial disharmony, the racial inequities, as being unaddressed. And so we think about it in the context of what is fair and what, is, and what, what justice will look like. But think about it also in the context of national security. Mm-hmm. That an adversary figured out that one of the biggest vulnerabilities in the United States of America is it's still undealt with issue of race. And so on the basis of that knowledge, that that was our vulnerability, not the variety of other things that could be perceived to be our vulnerability, 
That was our vulnerability. They attacked us based on that. That's like think that through. I mean, I'm I'm thinking it through, but it uh I know that. That doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me in the sense where uh, people who are not American like see that very clearly that race is a oh, huge yeah. no. it's a huge liability. Um it is a serious blind spot. The way that I would I would return that question to you is then like what is our government going to do about that? But but before we get to answer that question, because that mm-hmm. is the question, I would ask you, you are aware of that. Do you think that the vast majority of Americans are aware of that? No, I do not believe that's, that the vast majority of Americans are aware of that. Right. And that's the issue also, right? There is a huge hole in our game in terms of uh, Americans understanding that that is a vulnerability on the issue of national security. And so even if you don't Do you care, think that your colleagues understand that? I think some do, and I think some don't, and that scares me. Mm-hmm. And I think not enough, enough of them do know it in a way that they're prepared to do something about it, which is let's eliminate our vulnerability. We, let's deal with consequence and accountability in terms of what Russia did, but let's also deal with the prevention piece of it, right? As a, I have always said in terms of my perspective on criminal justice— you know, the, the, the failure of criminal justice policy in this country is that we have been reactive instead of understanding prevention is actually more effective at creating safe communities. You know, so deal with things like education, deal with things like access to job training, deal with poverty and, and those things that actually cause people to get in a cycle that may result in a threat to public safety, right? Let's deal yeah. with prevention instead of reaction. Well, so on that theory, right, it's a, the public health theory. Public health model taught us well. You want to deal with an epidemic, crime, or health, smartest, most effective, and cheapest way to deal with it is prevention first. If you're dealing with the emergency room and the prison system, too late and too expensive. Prevention. So on that point, national security, Russia, hacking, vulnerability, race. So if we want to erase the vulnerability, we need to deal with the issue of race in this country. And at least take that off the table as part of our vulnerability that allows us to be attacked in such a crude and obvious way. Um, so well, I, I, I have so many other questions to ask you, but I just like I, I want to come back to that point of how does that translate to policy? Like essentially the tools at our and at your disposal, this is a thing that trips a lot of people up. It's like, okay, even if you can agree, as all of us in this room do, that this is a core vulnerability and like core the, the root of so many problems in in America like what what on a policy level will well, address you, that meaning start you start with not saying there are good people on both sides of Charlottesville <laughs> listen let's listen. start there <laughs> listen. Let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, listen. there's some places to start <laughs> and it you know and then it is about dealing with issues like disparities and acknowledging them you can't deal with a problem if you're even if you fail to acknowledge it, its existence, and that gets back to what prompted this discussion, this label of identity politics. That's a way of trying to shut people up on the issue of race or gender. That is an attempt to shut people up. And so my point is, I'm not shutting up. <laughs> and so you can use whatever names you want to put on it, but I know what that is an attempt to do. It's an attempt to take that off the table for discussion, and it's an attempt to take it off the table to, first of all, acknowledge that it exists. Mm-hmm. 
Speaking of shutting up, I think that <laughs> one of the core moments, like reaction moments that a lot of people who listen to us that we've all seen was the way that some of your colleagues treated you when you were asking, you know, you were doing your job, you were doing your committee job by um, by questioning witnesses and they tried to really like minimize your your voice and your role in that. I wonder like if you could speak to especially, you know, we we have like a younger kind of audience mm-hmm. that listens to you, and that's an issue that never goes away. It's like men telling you to shut up, even though, uh, you know, I want to jump into the TV because I'm like, are you kidding? We send our best champion all the time. You people, like you people, meaning the men. <laughs> I'm like, some of you send your bozos to Congress a lot of time. So to me, the visual of like, the only black female yeah. senator. Like, that is not that's lost right. on me. It's 2018, and there right. is yep. one black and woman. And I'm the only the second in the, Uni- the history of the United States. Thank you, California, sending yeah. sending good women yeah. to, to the Senate. But, you know, it is, that visual is not lost on me. Yeah. And then watching, um, you know, and you're, I'm like, you are also, uh, I'm like, these people might not know, but I'm like, she's a lawyer. <laughs> this is what she does. <laughs> right. There are a few other people here. Like, what? Uh, how do you deal with that? Like, do you go back in private and it's like, don't ever do that to me again? Like, what is yeah. the, no, I, like, I, how, I what to, is the way that you navigate those office politics? Because you still so, work in so an I office. Have two, I have two points there. One is, um, in terms of the, my personal experience, mm-hmm. my role, as I perceive it to be, is to get to the truth. And I am acutely aware that there are those who do not want us to speak the truth or know the truth. So that experience for me was not about somebody trying to shut me up. It was about trying to shut down the truth. Mm-hmm. So that was how I experienced it. And frankly, you know, having been a courtroom lawyer, um, it was part of actually my everyday experience that people would object. I mean, you this is what happens, actually. Objection. And then, yeah. so, <laughs> literal. Literal. Literally. Yeah. Like, literally. So it's actually something that I'm really mm. used to. <laughs> and then you just keep going. But the second point I'll make is this, which is the bigger point that you're, you're raising. For so many of us, we are throughout our careers and our lifetimes have been and will be the only one us like us in that room. And it will be in that boardroom or that meeting room or that courtroom. And we will be, for many of us, the only one like us based on our gender, based on our race, based on our life experience. And the thing I always try to remind everyone is this. You remember when you are in that room and it feels like you're the only one like you there. All of us are in that room with you. You come from people. You are not alone. And we're all in that room with you. Like, it's really important to remember that. Don't ever let people make you feel small. Don't let me make people have you think that you're the only one like you. You know, that's why sometimes I really, I have a real kind of reaction to people saying, oh, you know, you're, you know, don't, like, don't buy it when people tell you you're unique. Because there is something about that that is also saying to you. That you know you're a unicorn. Mm. <laughs> that there's nobody else like you. Because, but 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 not only that you have to be exceptional. There's another nuance there, which is also saying to you, you're the only one like you, and mm-hmm. that's another way of saying you're alone. Yeah. No, you come with people. You come from people who are going to always be in that room with you, and that's part of. So when you're having that experience, it's something really important to remember. 
so that you hopefully will be able to endure the experience in a way that is chin up, shoulders back, knowing you're not the only one like you. And you're speaking for all the people who can't be in that room. And you've got people. And we've got your back. You've got people. I like that. I love that. Okay. There are things we kind of ask everyone who is on the show. Okay. Right. Um, will you tell us about your besties? We know that you yeah. brought a friend today. Uh-huh. Also. So maybe you might want to talk about them and how you met them. <laughs> well, you know, I have my one of my closest friends was my best friend in kindergarten. And we are still very close. Another one of my best friends fixed me up on a blind date with my husband. And um, I often refer to her as being my chosen sister. So I have my sister that my mother gave me and my sister who I love to her core, uh, my sister's sister. And then I have my chosen sister. I your have sister who gave you your mister. <laughs> and then I have my sister. That's so good. That's so good. Um, and, you know, I mean, we were talking about offline. I mean, there is something that is very special about the relationships that you have with your girlfriends. That is, um, it's about a chosen relationship. It's about a lifelong relationship and a commitment to that in many ways. Uh, they're very special relationships. And, I mean, I know that I have not been able to accomplish what I've accomplished so far without my besties. Mm-hmm. I love that. I do, too. Okay, so we're big readers. We talk a lot about books uh-huh. on the podcast. And we're wondering if there's a book that you have repeatedly given as a gift or that you're always recommending. Because, you know, it doesn't have to be like your favorite. but oh. something you... There are so many. I mean, one of the books is a book I wrote, Smart on Crime. <laughs> that yes. was a shameless plug. <laughs> no, ever We're one. here for that. We're Smart here for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's so many. There's um, you know, a book that actually I just recently referred to a couple of people um, that I'm reading, Americana, that is oh, yeah. really just mm. so fantastic. It depends on what I'm reading and just kind of sharing what I'm reading at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite snack? My favorite snack is classic nacho Doritos. Wow. We got a tip about this. <laughs> Honestly? Yes. Honestly. Honestly. So, and you don't have to take the train later today. They gave me a big old family-sized bag of Doritos. This is so fantastic. This is also a top favorite snack of mine, and I now feel a kinship with you. Listen, it's it's chemically engineered perfect. It's literally some of the best food, and you just cannot eat one. So you two are the same when it comes to snacks. (laughs) Like I was, I heard it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is an and situation." Uh This is why we got you the family size because I always want the family size. Like literally, I have to get on the train (laughs) and figure out lunch later. This is great. (laughs) You got it. You got it. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for doing what you do. This is it's such an important. I mean, what you guys are doing is is that's exactly what is about besties and about, you know, you can be accomplished and you can achieve success and the outside world can applaud you for all of that. But if, you know, to achieve real kind of sense of of being full and complete, your relationships with your girlfriends are so important. And it's, you know, I, I mentor a lot of people and I always tell them, you know, in addition to all of the stuff I will advise about what you do in terms of your professional careers, surround yourself with people who love you and will root you on 
and encourage you and challenge you and be honest with you and not, you know, not sell you a bunch of, sh- you know, BS. But, <laughs> you can you say know, shit on our podcast. Yeah, you know, <laughs> bullshit, right? And, yeah. and, but who will, you know, it's really important. Thank you for highlighting that and acknowledging it in, in this, this podcast and what you do. It's good stuff. Keep doing it. Okay, I am not shook. I am actually still shaking. Like, I can't use the past tense. I, it's, like, still in process. Shooketh. Shooketh. I, shaketh. I shaketh. Shakingeth. Um, <laughs> that was great. Come back anytime, Senator Harris. Ugh. I'm Kamala Harris, and I will see you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac. I'll see you later, baby. (laughs) At home. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) See you on your sofa. That's right.